If the inhabitants of the Indonesian fishing village of Malaba had only known what was coming. As they went about their daily routine one week ago, they were oblivious to the fact that an off-coast earthquake had created a tsunami that was headed for their village. Without sufficient warning, a massive wall of water struck shore and wiped out 80% of the buildings, the homes and the shops in Malabo, killing at least 7,000 villagers in that one village alone. Through no fault of their own, the inhabitants of this village were clueless. They did not perceive reality until it was too late. Although they may have known the time of day, they really did not know what time it was for them and for their village on that day. I think what was true of the villagers of Malabo last week is analogous to a spiritual danger that we all face. We are susceptible to living clueless lives, oblivious to the spiritual realities which surround us, and that is something that Jesus would not tolerate. And so as we return to his teachings today in Luke chapter 12, we find help in his instructions to hearers who needed to wake up to spiritual realities. They need, as Jesus speaks to them in particular, to perceive their location on God's redemptive timeline. Unlike the unsuspecting villagers of Malabo, Jesus' hearers were morally responsible for their state of imperceptiveness. And so Jesus labors to awaken them to the realities that surround them. Let's think of the context here once again. Jesus has labored for over two years in Galilee. And as he has ministered there to demonstrate who he is, Jesus has demonstrated power over the demonic realm. He has cast out demons. And Jesus, as he has continued to labor, has healed the sick and the diseased. In fact, people born with maladies were brought to full healing immediately through Jesus' powers. Jesus has created food. Taking just a little bit of food, he has fed the thousands upon thousands that were before him. Jesus has raised the dead, and he has even stilled the storms of nature. This is what he's done. Not once, not twice, not for a day, but for two years. And what has been the popular response to Jesus and all of these miracles that demonstrate who he is, that he does come from God and has been given a mission from the Father? How have people responded with great enthusiasm, with great excitement? They've attended Jesus' teaching. They have brought their sick to be healed by him. They're very enthused. Yet the masses remain curiously uncommitted to Jesus. They harbored a willful inconclusiveness in their hearts toward the Lord. Still standing back, still watching, wanting to see the miracles, wanting to watch the performance, but not fully committed to Jesus and to his mission. 
That's the setting. And where are the religious leaders? The opposition has continued to go downhill. They have continued to walk away from Christ. In fact, at this point, their jealousy has become so great that it's turned into hatred and into bitterness toward one who has done them no wrong. The religious authorities are opposed to Jesus. So in this passage before us today at the end of chapter 12, Jesus pleads with his disciples and with the crowds to wake up and see reality, to discern what God was doing in their world. The messianic age had dawned. They had to wake up to this reality, and so must we today. This reality check has been running through chapter 12. We pick up on this teaching of Jesus at verse 49, where Jesus identifies the times. He says, this is where you live. This is the reality that surrounds you. He identifies his times in verse 49. I have come, he says, to bring fire on the earth. That's a reality check for these people. Fire is most commonly used in the Old Testament as a metaphor for what? It's a metaphor for judgment. There is no reason not to understand this to be the meaning here. I'd like us to turn back as we think of the idea of fire to Luke chapter 3. It reminds us of something that we looked at earlier Jesus, of Jesus' ministry in the words of John the Baptist. In, John, or rather in Luke chapter 3 and verse 16, John answers them all. Luke 3 and verse 16, John answered them all and said, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. There's a division taking place there. The grain drops. The wind blows off the chaff. And he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. Jesus comes to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Let's go to Luke chapter 9. And verse 54, where we find here also this connection with fire and judgment. You remember here with the disciples and Jesus, particularly James and John, who after a rejection by a Samaritan village, say to Jesus in verse 54, when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them and they went to another village. Fire from heaven was a symbol of judgment, sometimes a literal judgment from heaven. And that is their idea here. So as we go back to Luke chapter 12 and we hear Jesus' words, I have come to bring fire on the earth, I believe that he is saying, I have come as a judge, as a divine judge. One liberal scholar commenting on this passage moans, that we just cannot get around the fact that Jesus repeatedly spoke about judgment. Indeed, we can't get around it because he did. This is reality. There is a divine tsunami coming. And Jesus knew it. 
The raging fire of judgment approaches and no amount of revisionist reading of Jesus is going to stop it in the Gospels. The only thing that those who cut up the text of Scripture can do is to say, Jesus didn't really say that. Somebody else had to write it in there. But if we take the Scriptures for what they say, we read them honestly, Jesus repeatedly spoke of judgment. And he says here, I have come to bring fire on the earth. That's a Jesus many people don't want to know. It's a reality many don't want to adopt and accept. But Jesus said it. I've come to bring fire on the earth. Notice what he says next. And how I wish it were already kindled. Where does that come from? I think Jesus is saying in his loving loyalty to the Father, in the purity of his heart, in the, his own sense of justice which fills his heart to overflowing, there is an earnest craving in Jesus to crush all earthly rebellion against his Father. He wants righteousness to reign. He wants the right to prevail. He wants to come as the King of kings and Lord of lords, but it's not time yet. You need to see where we are, says Jesus. Something must happen first, verse 15, but I have a baptism to undergo. I wish this fire was kindled, but first, a baptism. And how distressed I am until it is completed. What baptism is he speaking of? I think he's saying before I can bring fire, the fire of divine judgment against sinners, I must first be inundated by divine judgment myself. Christ's will is set on the cross. He would die in the sinner's place, and nothing would alter that mission. I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. I think the prospect of the cross filled Jesus' heart with deep distress. We hear the human heart and its yearnings here. I am distressed as I think of the cross. The reality check of the cross, which loomed in Christ's future, shook his soul. The fact that Jesus will someday judge sinners assumes that some will deserve that judgment, and that's a reality that he expresses beginning in verse 51. Let's see the world for what it is. I've come to bring judgment I have the cross before me first. Now let's think clearly here. Do you think, verse 51, I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. Did Jesus come to bring peace on earth? Sounds very familiar, doesn't it, to words that we've been singing here in these last weeks. Did Jesus come to bring peace on earth? The prophet Isaiah spoke of him as the Prince of Peace, 9-6. Zechariah, you remember the father of John the Baptist, prophesied of Jesus that he would, quote, guide our feet into the path of peace. What did the angels sing, of which we have been singing here in this last month? What did they sing on the night of Christ's birth? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Did he come to bring peace? Yes, he did. 
But Jesus here is focused on another point, and he says, Did I come to bring peace? There's a certain kind of peace that he did not come to bring. No, I tell you, but I have come to bring division. Liberal theologians have taught for a long time now that Jesus came to bring a spirit of universal brotherhood and peace among all peoples. That is a lie. That's not what Jesus said. We have his words here in the text before us. He did not come to bring universal brotherhood. What did he come to bring? Jesus came to bring peace between God and sinners. But many sinners reject Jesus' offer of reconciliation with the Father, which alienates them from those who accept that offer. Jesus spells this out in no uncertain terms in verse 52. Have I come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. Verse 52, from now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son, and son against father, and mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Let's accept the reality of the true Jesus, not the reworked one who's puffed up and simplified and made easy. The reality of the true Jesus is this. Jesus and his followers have been messing up families for 2,000 years. If we have trouble swallowing that reality, it is because we fail to perceive the reality of what Jesus has just said. I came to bring fire on the earth. There's an approaching judgment, and it means that families will be split apart. Jesus is willing to divide families with the gospel because Jesus is on a rescue mission. Those who reject him and refuse to follow are going to be judged. Jesus does not delight in dividing families. He came to bring peace between men and God. But he delights to save the few, those few who heed his warning. And so families will be divided. Some of you know that horror. Some of you know that horror in your immediate family. There are people who reject you because you have embraced Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life. It might be all right for them if you said that I'm a Christian and left it at that, but because you follow Christ and live a life of discipleship before him, they despise you. Some of you know that in your immediate family. Many more know it in their extended families. Jesus and the gospel divides families. It's reality. We've told the story of the young man in India when we were visiting with the days there who approached uh, Brother Sam and asked him if he could stay at the Bible college during the break that summer, or whatever time of year it is for them, but there was a break. 
He asked him if he could stay, and Shambu asked why. He said, because my family has disowned me because I came here to study the Bible. And they've disowned me to the level that they moved from the village in which we lived, and they have not told me where they moved. This is a young man growing up in this family. They left him. They disowned him. Jesus divides families. Unless you see reality, such painful division is going to trouble you to the point that you avoid it. Jesus didn't avoid it. He saw the reality of hell. And he saw the reality of pending judgment before God. And if we see as Jesus sees this day of divine judgment on the horizon, that reality will override the value of, human, of family unity. Salvation first. Family unity second. Any other notion rides on the wings of a false Jesus. Jesus now calls his hearers to discern the times. He's laid out a little bit here of the reality that pervades because of the situation in which we find ourselves, this coming fire of divine judgment, the cross approaching Jesus And this division of response, those who accept him and receive him, those who reject him and renounce him, there is this division. And so he calls the crowd. He said to the crowd. Now, the Greek phrase here is a little more specific, a little stronger. It says, now he said also to the crowd, which I think indicates that we're connecting what is said here to what precedes. He has been speaking to the disciples, verse 22, And now he turns to the crowd and says to them also, also speaking to them might indicate that he is saying essentially something along the same lines. He calls the crowd in more general terms to wake up and see reality. When he says, verse 54, when you see a cloud rising in the west immediately, you say, It's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Time, I think, is the key here. They don't see their their world. They don't understand that the messianic age has dawned. There is a pending judgment. They can discern the face of the sky. As we see here, first of all, the reference there in verse 55, when the south, I'm sorry, in verse 54, when the wind comes from the west, that's going to blow in rain off the Mediterranean Sea. And anyone living in Palestine knows that's where the rain comes from, and they see the clouds forming over the ocean. Coming their way, they know that it's going to rain. Even a child could discern the sky in that way. In verse 55, we have the southerly winds blowing in, and that's going to blow off the hot desert, and so it always brings in dry, hot air that can, in fact, wither plants. You know if you wake up in the morning and the wind is from that direction, it's going to be, as we call it, a scorcher. But they are hypocrites. Now, how is that? 
Turning to the crowds, he says, you are hypocritical. You can know what kind of weather you're going to experience on a particular day. You can discern the hand of God in the weather. You can see the timing of providence in the wind and the rain, but you fail to perceive the significance of my teachings and miracles. The miracles of Jesus, the signs that he is performing, are indicating that the messianic age has come, and they can't feel the wind, and they don't see the clouds gathering. The messianic age has come, yet there's this willful inconclusiveness toward Jesus. You can discern the sky. You see the hand of God there. Wake up and know that I have come. I've told this story before, but it fits here well. I was up in the Boundary Waters with three friends in the spring of the year. It was horribly cold. And we were on this vast stretch of the lake, right about the middle of it, and we turned behind and saw dark rain clouds moving toward us very quickly across the lake. And as it started to come, we could see the rain falling from those clouds, and it's about 50 degrees. So the, my, the friend that was in the canoe with me, we began to dig in and paddle as fast as we could paddle to get to the other side, to get to the shoreline that was quite a ways away. And as we were paddling wildly, I turned around and saw the first friend in the canoe behind us paddling wildly. And the guy in the back of that canoe was standing up on the seat with his fishing pole and silhouetted against the black sky, was casting his pole. <laughs> and we, we never let him forget that. <laughs> he was not discerning the clouds at all. We were rowing hard. He was fishing. Now that's funny because we all know what's coming. We had no clue of what rain clouds did and the consequences. We wouldn't know any better. But we know, we can discern those kinds of things and so we act. These people could not see that the clouds of judgment were gathering and could not see that the Messiah was among them. It was as clear to Jesus as if you were in the middle of a lake and saw a rainstorm coming at you. He could see it, and he's saying, to use the analogy here, you've got to put the fishing pole down and get to the shore. These same dark clouds are streaked with the light of Christ's return today, but people remain oblivious to the pending reality. And that's what we see in our world in the communities in which we live, at the workplace, at school. That's what you see in your neighborhood and what we see everywhere plastered in the media. We see people living in clueless ways with pride and fornication and greed and envy and bitterness and hatred and murder and drunkenness and drug abuse and physical abuse and on and on it goes as if there is no God and as if there is no coming day of accountability before him. Jesus says, wake up. Wake up to the reality of this coming day. I'd like you to turn to 2 Peter 3 by way of cross-reference. We'll come right back to Luke. But 2 Peter chapter 3. 
I think, speaks of our time and speaks of the people that Jesus was addressing, but certainly of our time. 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter warns his readers. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The messianic age has dawned. Jesus is coming back to reward his servants and judge his enemies. And we must ask the question, are we ready? Are we ready? Now, as we go back to Luke chapter 12, most biblical scholars take the following verses figuratively. They illustrate what Jesus means by this present time in verse 56. Some go so far as to call verses 57 to 59 a parable. It's very difficult to interpret here. My tendency always in interpretation is to just take it at face value and leave it alone. And say Jesus is just talking about what he's talking about. The problem with that is it seems hopelessly out of context. And some have made sport of that as they have tried to tear down the Bible. That's not a reason to interpret it figuratively. But I'm going to go that way here because that is, uh, in the vast majority of interpreters, take it that way. And for contextual reasons. All of that having been said, someday I might change my mind on this. But we'll take it this way. And in the end, whether figurative or literal, it is really going to come out to make essentially the same point. So Jesus saying, says to the crowds, verse 57, Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? Thinking contextually, what is he saying? Wake up and see it. Messiah has come. Judge what is right. Now the example that he gives is taken by many then to be a parable, an illustration of what he means. So verse 57, why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? Verse 58, as you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled to him on the way, or he may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, or we might call him the bailiff, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, why does Jesus advise these listeners here to give diligence to settle disputes out of court? If he were addressing the disciples, and this would be how I would take this naturally, if he's addressing the disciples, then the reason is probably you need to understand you're not going to get a fair shake from the judges of this world because they reject Christians. But he's addressing the crowd. So what does this have to do with the crowd who is undecided about Jesus? Why should they settle out of court? Jesus addressing the crowd here, it's not at all clear why he would instruct them this way unless what he is saying is intended to teach a lesson that's deeper than what he's actually saying. 
Notice that he assumes that all are guilty. When you go before the judge, you will pay the last penny. He's assuming that they are all guilty. So it may be that he's expressing truth in veiled language, which calls the reader to discern its deeper meaning. Some hearers might reply, what in the world was that about? What is, why is he talking here about settling out of court? What does that got to do with anything? And just dismiss it and walk away. But perhaps others would prove more thoughtful and see the deeper meaning. So if the vast majority, with the vast majority of evangelical commentators, if, I would say with them, if it is true that Luke inserts this saying here to fit the preceding and the following context, then Jesus may be saying something like this. Listen, you need to discern the times. Today is the day of salvation. Messiah is here. It is time to repent of your sin. Do not stand before the judge of the universe in your sin. Settle matters now. It is time to repent. You may know what time of day it is, but you are not discerning the era. You're not discerning that it is time to seek the Lord. Wake up and settle that account with God. I wonder if we view life from the standpoint of reality in the light of Jesus' teachings. Here is the truth. As we walk forward on the path of life, the fire of divine judgment is approaching us. We are not like those who did not see the coming waves that took away their life. God's word issues fair warning. Judgment is coming. Truth. As we live this life, the return of Jesus Christ is approaching us. In a very short period of time, you will meet Jesus. It's not going to be very long, really. And so will your neighbors, and so will your workmates, and so will your schoolmates. We are all going to meet Jesus Christ fairly soon. This is the reality that should shape our perceptions and define our goals and occupy our attention. I will soon meet Jesus Christ. The Messianic age has dawned. Messiah has come. In fact, the baptism has already passed. He has been crucified. He has risen from the dead. He is seated at the Father's right hand and He will come back. We're here for a short time. We're here to preach the divisive gospel of Jesus Christ because the day of reckoning is fast approaching. The tsunami of divine judgment is rolling across the sea of time, and it will be here soon for you and for me. And when that day arrives, may God find us in a life raft filled with people that we have invited in and shown the way of salvation. May he not find us clueless and living as if we would live forever down here. When the judgment of the flood comes again, may we be in a boat so that what destroys the unbeliever rescues us as believers. The coming of Jesus Christ is that flood. I have come to bring fire on the earth, he said. He warned us 
We should be ready and we should live as if that judgment is in fact coming. May he not find us clueless as if we would live forever. And that's what this whole 12th chapter has really been about. To wake up and to see what is really going on. Notice chapter 12 verses 4 and 5. Give me just a few more moments here as we review this. Chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I say, fear him. Think that way. Verse 15, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Verse 23 of this chapter, be wealthy toward God. Life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Verse 23, so verse 28. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. Verse 31, seek his kingdom. And these things will be given to you as well. 4 verse 34, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Beginning at verse 35 and following, he says, wake up and watch. The Son of Man is coming back. And at verse 49 and following, he speaks of bringing judgment on the earth. The messianic age has come. Wake up and see the world from God's perspective. If I speak to anyone here, who is clueless about the coming judgment of Jesus Christ, I call you to wake up. In Jesus' stead, I plead with you to wake up. He has told you that this judgment is coming. You've got to be ready. And the good news is that He has provided the forgiveness of sin so that when, you co- when He comes, you can be ready. You can be rescued from your sin and have a home in heaven Jesus Christ endured the baptism that he speaks about here in verse 50. He endured it, I believe, for you. He took on that baptism of death and died in your place to pay the penalty of your sin. If he comes back and you have not embraced that message, his coming will spell judgment. But if he comes back or receives you to himself and you are trusting in his work in your behalf, then his coming will be the start of joys unspeakable and full of glory. Are you ready? Are you readying yourself? You will meet him soon. May it be a day of joy and not a day of unsuspecting sorrow. Let's bow before the Lord. We pray, Father, that while we are waiting, you would come. We pray to say it in another way, that when you come, we'd be found waiting, that we would be waiters and watchers for the return of our Savior. That we would view the things of this earth and the decisions of our lives in the right spirit and the right perspective. I pray, dear Father, that we would be prepared for judgment, preparing also not only ourselves, but preparing 
a clueless world. Where is the promise of his coming is the spirit of this age, the mocking spirit of those who do not see that the wave of judgment is rolling toward them. God, we're here as warning. We are here as lights to point the way in the darkness and to say, you've got to be ready. I pray, Lord, that while we are waiting, you would come. I pray that you'd find us waiting. That the way that we live our life would be such that it would be clear. We're awake and aware of the future. I pray for any that knows you not as personal Savior and Lord. And I ask, dear God, that at the name of Christ, they would bow and come to saving faith in him. Please lead to that end and move within our hearts to see this world from your perspective. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Stand together and turn to 700.